A high-ranking military official recently cited acquisition and the defense supply chain in predicting mathematical certainty of the U.S. losing out to China. That made contractors sit up and listen. We get more now from federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. And this was an Air Force Major General, correct, Larry? That's right, Tom. This is uh, Air Force Major General Cameron Holt. He's the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Acquisition for the Air Force. He had some very choice remarks to make at a public forum recently, talking about the ability of our acquisition system, particularly the DOD acquisition system, to move at the speed of need and uh, the extra steps we put on our acquisition system that makes it more difficult to acquire things. Uh, and that harm, harms our national security, particularly against potential adversaries uh, like China. He said, yes, uh, we are going to lose if we can't figure out how to drop the cost and increase the speed in our defense supply chain. He said it's a mathematical certainty. So speed, I guess, from requirement to buying something, the implication is that the faster you can get through all of this, the less expensive it'll be for the military. Less expensive it is for the military. It also reduces industry overhead. Tom, right now we have an acquisition system we're trying to achieve a lot of socioeconomic uh, goods with. And that's not necessarily a terrible thing, and it's also not really new. We have a history in the U.S. of trying to solve or at least address uh, post socioeconomic ills through government acquisition. I think the general's comments here can really best be summed up by saying, look, it's all well and good to have some of these extra uh, aims, but if you lose sight of your main mission, that is acquiring needed goods and services in a timely manner, then you really jeopardize everything else. You jeopardize your mission, you jeopardize national security, and you jeopardize your ability to perform uh, the socioeconomic good that you would otherwise want to achieve. And it's easy to cite the DFAR and the FAR and what can change in federal acquisition regulations or what should change. What's your sense of what industry could do to speed things up on its part? Tom, I think uh, one of the things that industry could do is be proactive. You hear a lot from people, particularly in the DOD customer side of things, that industry, even large established contractors are reactive. They wait for the RFQ to come out. They wait for the RFP to come out. And industry often uh, sees a different perspective, Tom. They know what they're working on. They know what their cutting edge technologies are. Many of the people in industry used to be in government, so they know the problems they're trying to uh, achieve or solve. So I think that one thing industry could do would be to go out and be more proactive and recommend solutions. Now, you're always going to run into people inside DOD and elsewhere, to be fair, that says, well, we didn't invent that here, so we're not going to consider it. But there's nothing wrong with trying to go out and meet your customer uh, and try to uh, have them uh, move forward with something that otherwise might take months. If you've got a bright idea, don't put it under a bushel. Yeah, Holt estimated, and you're writing this to your clients, that every dollar China spends on national security, the United States spends 20. I think he means dollar per dollar, not necessarily the fact that we have a bigger overall defense budget than China, but simply that ours is way less efficient. Well, it is way less efficient. We're really bogging down our acquisition process 
with a wish list of perceived ancillary benefits and also to be fair a lot of regulations tom this is a time when we've seen new regulations on secure supply chain on cybersecurity, on a whole host of, of companies that you can and can't do business with talking to my colleagues who are working on uh, the Russia supply issue, you know, that changes every day about companies that are or, or not or may not be doing business somewhere in Russia. And those are all tough things for contractors to keep track of. And if they don't keep track of them correctly, then they know they risk the wrath of an inspector general or an other oversight report. That just slows them down and it adds to the collective cost. Those things are put into place, Tom, for legitimate reasons. But I think what General really is saying is we need to take a step back and analyze what is it that we really need in our acquisition system to protect us and to make sure that people are treated fairly, but we still need to keep our eye on the mission. I think other things are getting ahead of the mission right now, Tom. And when other things start to interfere with the mission, you end up with problems. And if you're talking about defense acquisition, those could be very big problems indeed. We are speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And you're also referring this week to the return of contractor blacklisting for alleged offenses of labor or environmental law not connected to a particular federal contract. What's going on there? Tom, contractor blacklisting goes back to the last days of the Clinton administration uh, when they attempted to put a rule in place and actually did have one in place for a little while that would have prohibited the government from doing business with companies that hadn't been convicted, but in that case had merely been accused of a whole host of alleged wrongdoings with labor, environmental, and other types of law, none of which had anything to do with performance on a government contract. And even though that's gone away and the original rule was withdrawn and canceled, Tom, we still see contractor blacklisting issues come back. Most recently, we've seen that with the Department of Agriculture trying to implement a rule that talks about uh, that, that department not doing business with companies that violated labor laws. Really no distinction in the original uh, draft about uh, what type of labor laws, whether they were big violations, small violations, whether they'd since been addressed. It was very vague. And then just in the last week or so, we've seen a couple of blacklisting provisions make their way into the House version of the 2023 Defense Authorization Bill, one that would actually promote companies who had done a good job in uh, promoting labor fairness. And again, that's not really well defined either. So we see that contractors have to uh, wake up and pay attention to what's going on around them in terms of these types of rules and regulations, because they could be things that further handcuff their ability to do business in the market and also uh, add time to the acquisition cycle. And we just got finished talking about why particularly in DOD, we don't need to add any more time to the acquisition cycle. And these possible violations that could result in blacklisting not related to the contract itself also increase a company's exposure to whistleblowers. Oh, I think that's primarily the way that these types of provisions would be enforced, Tom, is via whistleblowers. They have a role in government. They absolutely do. But, you know, sometimes they're motivated by more than 
uh, their desire to see things go well. Sometimes they're motivated by the fees they know they can collect if the government gets a, a cash award. So, you know, the government is not going to beef up its oversight community to track all of these new violations. There probably is an almost endless supply of whistleblowers out there uh, who would be happy to point out that, you know, company A violated a labor law five years ago. And, you know, even though they may have made a, a remedial change since then, that could be enough to get a contracting officer to convince them that they weren't eligible for award. That's another concern. We're asking contracting officers, people trained in government acquisition, to suddenly be uh, solemn, show the wisdom of Solomon when they're trying to discern whether or not a company violated a labor law. And if so, just what the extent of that violation is on their ability to be a government contractor. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. As always, thanks so much. Tom, thank you very much, and I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy. His name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her. I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there are so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do 
admit that, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense. And I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating, Um, you know, from historical to current, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time.
This episode is brought to you by Verizon. With Verizon, you can now get a private 5G network, so you can do more than connect your business. You can make it even smarter. Now ports can know where every piece of cargo is and where it's going. Robots can predict breakdowns and order their own replacement parts. And retailers can get ahead of the fashion trend of the day with a new line tomorrow. With a Verizon private 5G network, you can get more agility and security, giving you more control of your business. We call this enterprise intelligence. From the network America relies on, Verizon. 5G ultra-wideband available in select areas. Pre-qualification required for private 5G network. Terms apply. Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature.